Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Good evening and welcome to our Conversation with the Candidate series. I'm Adam Sexton and our guest tonight is Democrat Marianne Williamson. Tonight we'll be getting to know Ms. Williamson and where she stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience jump in with their questions in a town hall format. But before we get to that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Marianne Williamson was born in Texas in 1952 and went to public school in Houston. She spent two years at Pomona College in Claremont, California, and then began speaking to small groups about a set of books called A Course in Miracles, including at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles. She describes the books as a self-study program of spiritual psychotherapy based on universal spiritual themes. Williamson then became involved in helping with the AIDS crisis, facilitating counseling and support groups, and the creation of Project Angel Food, a meal service for homebound people suffering from AIDS that she says has now served more than 11 million meals in the Los Angeles area. In 1992, she published her first book called A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles. She was invited to be a guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show, and after that, the book went on to become the fifth largest selling book in the U.S. that year. She has also published 12 other books, four of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. Williamson ran for Congress in California in 2014, coming in fourth out of a field of 16. She believes that the U.S. has a problem with its psychological fabric, and in order to deal with it, Americans must address it on the level of their internal being. Marianne Williamson, thank you so much for joining us this thank evening. You we for appreciate it. Me. Thank you. So you're a non-traditional candidate. You've never been elected before. But what do you tell voters here in New Hampshire who want to know why you're running? I'm running because I believe, like every American of goodwill believes, that America has swerved. We've swerved from our ethical center. Our economic system has swerved from its moral center. Our government has served from its moral center, from our democratic values and from our human values. And if we do not address our problems on that level, then no matter what we do to fix things on the outside, this country will not transform. There's a difference between fixing and transforming. And in the 21st century, this is an era where we realize that just tweaking things on the outside, what we think of is the issues, the traditional issues, changing things here, changing things there. Something is wrong on a more fundamental level, and I, I address those. The presidency is the most powerful office on planet Earth. What has prepared you in your life to assume the mantle <coughs> of that power? Franklin Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of the presidency is moral leadership. He said that administ the administrative aspects of the job are secondary. And I think if you need moral leadership, which I think we do right now, you might want to think of hiring a moral leader. I believe that we need a political visionary right now more than we need a political mechanic. The same mindset that got us into this ditch is not the mindset that will get us out of it. You've spoken before about the erosion of human values. What do you mean by that, and what would you do to change that erosion? <clears throat> well, first of all, when I talk about the erosion of human values, I'm not talking about a problem inside the heart of the average American. We're fine as people. We're no better than anyone else, but we're certainly no better than anyone else. I see goodness, I see dignity, and I see compassion. The problem is that our government right now does not 
often enough display and channel our goodness, our decency, and our compassion. As individuals, we don't put making money before taking care of our children. We, we don't make this mentality of, of, of just getting what I want more important than being good people. And yet, as a government, our government has become an advocate for short-term profits, usually for major corporate entities, more than an advocate for the people the people of this country, the world, and the planet on which we live. If we are going to change our social contract from a government of the people, by the people, for the people, if we're going to change that to of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations, we should have a conversation about that and make sure that the American people agree to that. We've apparently acquiesced to a systematic change in that direction, systematically taking the major resources of this country and placing them in the hands of just a very few people. This has been going on for 40 years, and I feel that it's time for us to interrupt that pattern, for the American people to rise up now and to intervene. So what's a specific policy then that <coughs> embodies these human values? Well, there are many things. First of all, I would repeal those tax cuts that are given to the very, very wealthiest among us. These, these, this kind of wealth inequality that we have today, the greatest since 19 1929 did not come out of nowhere. It has to do with tax policies. It has to do with corporate subsidies. And so what has happened, for instance, like take the 2017 tax bill, where 83, it's a $2 trillion bill, where 83 cents of every dollar goes to the very, very richest among us. Meanwhile, you have 40% of Americans who are struggling just to make ends meet. We need an infusion, a massive infusion of economic opportunity and hope, much along the line that Franklin Roosevelt brought about. That has to do with universal health care. It has to do with, with um, making college at the very least more affordable. It has to do with wage, uh, uh, raising the minimum wage. It has to do with the canceling and renegotiation of so many of these college loans. It has to do with dealing with the fact that this tsunami of automation is coming towards us. I believe that every American has within us God-given unlimited potential for creativity and for goodness. But this country is acting now Contrary to what the American dream and the American aspiration is, we are capping people's dreams. We are making more difficult for people. Our government, which is meant to serve the people, has become almost punitive towards the majority of people. And this needs to stop. It is having devastating human consequences. One of the issues I'm most concerned with is the children of the United States. We have millions of American children living in chronic trauma millions of American children who are going to schools where they don't even have the adequate school supplies to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot read by the age of eight, that child has a drastically diminished chance of graduating from high school and a drastically increased chance of incarceration. That's why I would have a U.S. cabinet level U.S. Department of Children and Youth. Okay, we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment, just down in Studio B, where we'll join our studio audience. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our guest, Democratic Candidate for President Marianne Williamson. We're going to go into our town hall format now where we have our uh, New Hampshire voters here ready with their questions. And the first question tonight will be coming from Aaron Motto. This country is very politically polarized, trading right and wrong for left and right. What would you do to change this? I think that you don't change other people, you change yourself. And I am very clear, and I think all of us need to remember that the foundational principle of this country 
is unity in diversity. Out of many, one. I think we all need to take a deep breath and remember that none of us have a monopoly on truth. Other people do not owe it to you to agree with you. There are high-minded conservative principles and there are high-minded liberal principles. We need a consensus of people of goodwill who know that. I think a smug, self-righteous, intolerant left-winger is no more or less dangerous to the emotional fabric of this country than a smug, self-righteous, intolerant right-winger. We need people to take a deep breath, to know that none of us, as I said, have a monopoly on truth. Other people, whether they agree with you or not, have values as well and care about life as you do. And when we find that center within ourselves, then we acknowledge that place in other people. It's a change in our own hearts that has to happen in order for us to reclaim our, our, the public discourse of honor and goodness. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. The next question <laughs> comes from Kathleen Hoey of Manchester. Hi, how are you? Thank you. Um, so I'm asking a pres prescription drug question. How would you address the high cost of prescri prescription drugs so people can get the treatment they need without sacrificing their basic needs? I think that the power of big pharma is obscene in this country. Whether it has to do with the oil companies, military industrial con uh, contractors, health insurance companies, or big pharma. We have a corporatocracy in this country. We have become a veiled aristocratic system. That is what we repudiated in 1776, and we need to repudiate it again. This is an, the American Revolution, in that sense, is an ongoing process. The U.S. government should not be a subservient to, to big pharma. The U.S. government should not be an advocate for short-term profits for big pharma. The United States government should be an advocate for the people of the United States. Okay, thank you, Kathleen. Our next <coughs> question comes from social media on Instagram. User RobWills64, he asks, with women's equality forefront in our society, do you support women registering for the draft upon their 18th birthday, just like men? I would have to say yes. Expound a little bit. I think, do, you, do you think women belong in uh, combat situations? I think women belong in whatever, uh, com in whatever situations in the military that they would wish to be in. Okay. Next question comes from Benjamin <coughs> Pelletier. Hello. Um, since the start of the Cold War, the United States has repeatedly tried to or did get involved in conflicts throughout the world. Will you continue this strategy as president? Since World War II. You know, before World War II, we didn't even have a standing army. I think we'd all agree that a standing army is necessary. And I certainly uh, have great respect for the U.S. military, and I think we all should and do. But I see the military like you see a surgeon. If you want to have surgery, we need to have the best surgeon. There's no doubt about that. We should avoid surgery at all costs when we can, of course. So yes, I think the military has been used irresponsibly, obviously. It has been used irresponsibly in Iraq. We know that it was used irresponsibly in, in Vietnam and in other places as well. So while I would not hesitate uh, to use force in situations where the security of the United States and the values that we uphold are at risk, I believe, yes, that it is without a doubt true. Um, and not only obvious to us here in America, but unfortunately obvious to many people around the world for whom the moral authority, the global moral authority of the, of the United States has been so compromised that we have become bullies militarily, tried to use brute force when far too often love and soul force and brotherhood and justice and humanitarian issues and a true championship for democracy would have been the way to lead as a country. So you believe the war in Iraq and <coughs> Vietnam are examples of irresponsible military leadership. Can you name an example of what you would consider responsible military intervention by the U.S. since Vietnam? Oh, since Vietnam. 
I don't know about it. <laughs> of course, I was going to say World War II. You know, Afghanistan is, a, is not an easy one. I have ambivalence about Afghanistan. Um, so I, I think Afghanistan is not cut and dried the way something like, uh, like uh, um, the Iraq War is, where we invaded a country that had done nothing to us, uh, that had nothing to do with 9-11, uh, in which there was no al-Qaeda. And to be honest, even if they had had weapons of mass destruction, the truth is that the United States does business with countries that have weapons of mass destruction every single day. And I think that this is an example of a case where the American people cannot farm out our conscience and cannot farm out some of these political decisions. We, the American people, can only reclaim the power of the American people if we ourselves realize that there is a responsibility to citizenship. The problem for me is not just that we invaded Iraq, but that we, the American people, did not question it as deeply as we should have. The media did not question it as deeply as we should have. And I think if we had all been asking ourselves much more meaningful questions about that, the U.S. government would not have felt so free to take such reckless action. And what would the Defense Department budget <coughs> look like under a President Williamson? Well, even uh, President Bush's uh, Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, said that we must learn to wage peace. General Mattis said before he left the uh, Defar Department of Defense that if you're not going to fully fund the State Department, he said, I'm going to have to buy more ammunition. We must wage peace. You can't just fight sickness, you have to cultivate health. And you can't just always be preparing for war, you also have to equally wage peace. You wage peace by expanding economic opportunities for women, and these are statistically, sociologically uh, uh, certain facts. In a situation where there is greater economic opportunity for women, greater educational opportunity for children, reduced violence against women, and an amelioration of human suffering, unnecessary human suffering whenever possible, there is a reduction of violence. But for every dollar that the United States spends on peace creation, we spend over $1,000 on the military. And that is not the way to provide for peace for our children 50 years from now or 100 years from now. Our national defense strategy, and once again, this is not a critique of the military. This is of the political decisions made. Our national defense strategy has to do with preparing for war. It has nothing to do hardly anything to do. I won't say it has nothing to do, but it has far too little to do with actually creating and paving a way to peace. In, a, in my administration, there would be a far more robust uh, uh, peace creation, uh, far more funding, far more partnership, equal partnership between the Defense Department and the State Department in order that humanitarian and diplomatic efforts that truly do wage peace would be a hallmark of American foreign policy. Okay, one more social media question before we get back to the town hall. Carol Fontaine asks, <coughs> how would you address the ballooning national debt and the inevitable financial crisis it will cause? Well, the ballooning national debt, you know, the, 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 I, I believe in investing in people. And I believe that what we need is more productivity and more creativity among the American people. The more creativity and productivity you have among the American people, the more capacity you have to address the debt. But we keep behaving in ways, whether it has to do with the high cost of medicine, whether it has to do with the high cost of college, whether it has to do with so many of the ways that we actually support companies in making it harder for people to be productive and, uh, to be, uh, productive and creative. So I believe in investing in education, investing in people, investing in opportunities, we do need a version of a Green New Deal. And to be honest, with what's coming with automation, the United States should be having a serious conversation about 
universal basic income, federal jobs guarantee, or some mix thereof. We have a tsunami coming to this country, and it could cause massive human devastation. Okay, next question comes from <coughs> Stephen Kidder of Concord. Howdy, thank you so much for taking my question. Thank you. Uh, my name is Stephen. Uh, I'm an ACLU voter, which means I prioritize civil liberties when I cast my ballot. And an issue that's important to me is LGBTQ plus rights. And I want to know, will you do federally what we are in the <coughs> process of doing locally in New Hampshire, which is federally recognized a third gender marker on IDs? A, a third gender marker on IDs. Tell so me why that would increase your civil liberties, please. Um, it's so therefore, therefore people can live authentically and not live um, and not have to abide by a binary that <coughs> does not abide by them. I believe that the principle that God gave, God gave inalienable rights to all people, to life and to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You're being gay or you're being transgender or you're being, being whatever you are is the way you pursue happiness. And it is the function of government, our Declaration of Independence says, to secure those rights. If that increases your capacity to live in a way that pursues your happiness, then go for it. That's what America should be. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And we'll get you a little water here, Ms. Williamson. Thank you. Sounds like you're a little parched, but uh, <coughs> let's get to another social media question. Sorry. We're going to get one here from Thank Douglas you. Hansen. He asks, what are your plans to address gun violence in America? Gun violence in America, like so many of our problems, is multidimensional. Some of the problems, and this is why we have to take a holistic, integrative approach. Some of the problems are external, and some of the problems are internal. A lot of the violence in America is the violence in our own hearts, and we do have to address that. At the same time, I believe that just like we were talking about the health insurance companies, just like we were talking about Big Pharma, just like we were talking about oil companies, just like we were talking about military industrial complex, we also know that when it comes to gun manufacturers in the United States and their lobbying arm, the NRA, the American government has done more to advocate for their short-term profits than to advocate for the safety of the American people. I agree with the majority of American people who want these universal, uh, to close these loopholes and these universal background checks. The American people want to, want to outlaw the bump stocks. And I think we should have a very serious conversation about the issue of assault rifles. I do not believe that a military assault rifle should be in the hands of an average citizen. On the other hand, ladies and gentlemen, at the same time, even though those things are important, and I would, I would be definitely on the side of all legislative and all presidential effort to make sure that those things come to pass, fighting off the undue influence of the NRA, at the same time, we're adults. We know what's going on in this country. And we know how many guns are already in the hands of people. We know that the violence has to begin with the peacemaking efforts inside our own hearts. We need more compassion for each other. We need more forgiveness of each other. We, we need to address the issue of violence inside as well as outside. And until we do, we will have an increasing problem in this country. Another question coming from Jerome Horwitz. He asks, <coughs> what is your stance on illegal immigration and border security? I believe that a terrible, um, uh, a, a terrible disservice has been done, not only to m many people who are immigrants, but to the foundational principles of this country. Uh, George Bush, a Republican president, spoke out just in the last couple of days about the value and the importance of immigration. I'm an immigration lawyer's daughter. I'm an immigration lawyer's sister. I grew up going to the ceremonies where, where immigrants are given the opportunity to become citizens. The truth of the matter, what I saw as a child is true. Th 
the, the average immigrant, in order to become a citizen of the United States, has to study more American civics, more American government, knows more about our Declaration of Independence, and knows more about our constitutional principles than we do. They're the ones sometimes who are exhibiting their lifeblood, and this has always been true, coming to a new country in order to have a better life. That's America. That is our characterological DNA. We want better for ourselves. We want better for our children. And when people like our grandparents and our great-grandparents, unless you're a descendant of a slave or the descendant of a Native American whose, whose people were here for thousands of years before the, uh, the European settlers came, this is what our grandparents came here to do. All four of my grandparents came here from Russia for a better life and made it here. So I, I, I feel that that, that that value, that democratic value, is it must be protected at all costs. We did not have a problem, ladies and gentlemen. This problem was made up. We have some issues that we have to handle, but border security, the main issues of border security are at our ports. The main issues of border security have to do with what might be coming in with submarines. The real issues of border security have to do with much more serious things than just some poor woman trying to get over here with her child. That has to do with even, some experts would argue, with the possibilities of nuclear bombs. That's where we should be putting our border security um, efforts, our border security money. This is all, this is a terrible illusion and canard that has been, uh, that has been created, this anti-immigrant fervor, this demonization of, of immigrants. And I hope that when this unfortunate episode of American history comes to a close, that we, the American people, will reclaim the goodness of our honor of the immigrants who seek a better life here. This social media question coming in <coughs> from Steve Merrill. He asks, when do we, the people, get the same insurance coverage that people working for us receive, i.e. members Isn't of Congress. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? We all know this. It, you know, I see this election in so many ways. That's just one way in which the American people need to admit what we know to be true. And that's the unfairness of this system, the unjust, injustice of this system. And we have to rise up. And that's what elections are for. There has to be a massive a rising up of the consciousness of the American people and the marches that we have to take to the polls. That's a perfect example. The fact that the same Congress that will not give us universal health care and make sure that their health care is just fine. We need to reclaim our capacity to guffaw and to say that stops now. Our next question comes from <coughs> Jan Pendlebury. Welcome to New Hampshire, Ms. Williamson. Thank you. If elected president, what is your plan to remove the influence of the pharmaceutical industry in health care? <clears throat> I believe that we should have universal health care. I believe that the U.S. government should be able to negotiate for better prices. It is outrageous. And as I already said, the fact that we, that we know whatever the insurance companies want, whatever Big Pharma wants, that stops when I'm president. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. And uh, Ms. Williamson, <clears throat> you're someone who's done a lot of uh, writing about how to help people yes. and how to help them improve their lives. Uh, part of being in politics is sometimes you don't have all the answers. Uh, so I'm curious, of all the teachings that you provided to people over the years, do you think there's anything that just doesn't apply in the world of politics that wouldn't work if you're in the White House? I think quite the opposite. Uh, quite the opposite. The things that I've written about and talked about for 35 years need to be brought into politics. We're here to love each other. And when you forget that, when you forget that, things fall into chaos. And that is as true of a nation as it is of an individual. All that a nation is is a group of people. So the same spiritual and moral principles that prevail within the life of an individual prevail within the life of a nation. And that includes, love includes radical honesty with oneself. 
admitting your own character defects, admitting where you haven't been who you say you are. And that's why I feel that I'm uniquely qualified to help navigate these times, because I, I feel that I can, along with the American people, with love for this country, take a deep look. Where are we not now who we say we are? Where are we not standing on the principles that we purport to believe in? Where are we not now a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? Where do we have things we need to atone for? Where do we have amends that we need to make? You, you, you can't heal your life, ladies and gentlemen, without getting straight with the God of your understanding, and neither can a nation. And Abraham Lincoln said that. Other presidents have said that. And the fact that we are leaving out the moral and spiritual principles of human life and transformation, that's what's wrong with our politics today. I'd be bringing them in. How would those principles apply if you're sitting across a negotiating table from someone like Kim Jong-un who executes his own people by feeding them to dogs? Kim Jong-un represents a situation where, you know, some, some sicknesses, some diseases you can cure and others you have to manage. And Kim Jong-un is more like something that needs to be managed. There is no specific cure. We have to manage it very carefully. I have great respect for the international experts within our intelligence agencies who are well aware of all the vicissitudes of that relationship. I would, unlike our current president, do a lot of listening to the, to the American uh, intelligence agencies and would, to the best of my abilities, I'm sure any responsible president would, seek to manage that condition, uh, that situation in such a way as to secure the safety of the American people. And do you still think you would write any books in the White House? I would be very busy. <laughs> I would okay. be working for you at that point. Okay. How do you do winter? Outside? Inside? Either way, we've got fresh ideas. Served up hot or cold. You ready? If you're after winter adventures, packed with powder, or ones brewed fresh, looking for action, or a break from it, need a place to chill, or somewhere to warm up, Make the season better with New Hampshire Chronicle. Get more out of winter. We're going to get right back into the questions, and we're going to start with Grayson Brocklebeck. Hi. Thank you for taking the time to thank answer you. our questions today. Uh, in my own research that I've done, I've noticed that your campaign is based a lot on some abstract thoughts and I'm ideas. Sorry, my, my campaign is what, sir? Uh, your campaign is based on a lot of abstract <coughs> ideologies. <coughs> I was just curious as to what are some concrete steps you plan on taking to translate your emotionally based or abstract based campaign <coughs> into real world success? I actually don't think that my uh, campaign is based on abstraction at all. If you look at my website, if you look at my issue section, I think I have a greater articulation of specific uh, policy prescriptions than pretty much any candidate. Um, one of the things I want to do is to establish a cabinet level U.S. Department of Children and Youth. We have millions of American children who are in living in chronic trauma. <coughs> Many of them go to schools that don't even have minimum safety requirement standards met. They go to schools in classrooms where there are not the minimum uh, school supplies necessary to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot read by the age of eight, the chances of, the, of his or her high school graduation is drastically decreased, and the chances of his or her incarceration someday are drastically increased. One of the things I've talked about here in, in New Hampshire, where the opioid crisis is, is so severe, it will do no good to just, <clears throat> to just treat opioid addiction if we do not face the problem that with every child that is neglected, abandoned, underserved, undereducated, and undercared for, we are adding to the risk of creating new generations of opioid addicts.
So we have to deal with the fact on the level of childhood where it all happens. Psychologists now tell us, neurologists talk about the neuroplasticity in the brain, talk about cognitive retention and the ability of, of, of cognitive abilities. We have to get to these children. This is very practical. So I don't just talk about love. I talk about what you're going to do for the children to display your love. I don't just talk about love. I talk about the fact that we need to wage peace. We need to expand economic opportunities for women. I, it, it, this is not new. I'm not just a philosopher. I am someone whose work <clears throat> having founded AIDS organizations, having, uh, work, having founded peace organizations, and having worked on anti-poverty um, uh, efforts throughout my adult career. I'm a very practical woman. I don't just talk. You don't see me in cut velvet. You know, I'm not just pink paint and, and, uh, and, and crystals. I'm, I'm into getting things done, and I would get things done according to these values as your president. Thank you, Grayson. Thank you. And we'll get you a little bit more water there, Ms. Sorry Williamson. About this. No problem. But talk a little <coughs> bit about that. Uh, I'm very intrigued by the AIDS activism you did. Yes. Uh, talk about the, the, how you decided to get involved there. I'm sure you were living in Southern California, so <coughs> an epicenter of the early AIDS crisis. But what motivated you to, to do something? It was 1983 when I began lecturing. And very shortly after I began lecturing, the AIDS crisis burst onto the scene, and Los Angeles was particularly hard hit. Western medicine, and I'm not saying they weren't trying, but as those of you who are around remember, it took a while before they, they kept playing cards, and it took a while before they, they had anything to offer. Uh, you were uh, diagnosed with the, the virus, and that was uh, for quite a while an automatic death sentence. It also, I'm afraid, took a while for the uh, organized religious institutions to say much either. They had some things to obviously work through. I, however, was a then young woman talking about a God who loves you no matter what, and about how love works miracles. So in a very real way, gay men in Los Angeles gave me my career because <clears throat> there was flocking uh, to this then young woman uh, who was, was, was having a conversation about how the whole point of love is to love each other and to be there for each other. That's, as I was saying to you, sir, it's, it's not just talk. You know, a spiritual conversation that doesn't include uh, caring for the suffering of other human beings and other species is a, is a love that's just really a, 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 a rebranded narcissism. So that is what happened in Los Angeles at this time. We started an organization called the LA Center for Living, then had a, a Manhattan Center for Living as well. And that gave non-medical, uh, non free non-medical support services to people living uh, with AIDS and other life-challenging illnesses. What happened was that guys, let's say, <clears throat> and some women as well, who had been diagnosed with AIDS, and in some cases it was other life-challenging illnesses, would come to the house and they could get fed and they would have therapy groups and they would get massages and they would hang around and watch movies with other people. They didn't have to go through this experience alone. And then one day I came and I said, well, where's David? And they said, well, David couldn't, couldn't leave the house. And I went, oh, okay. Next day I come, where's Mark? Well, Mark couldn't come here today, he couldn't leave the house. And I started asking, well, how are they going to eat? Who's going to feed them if they were eating here? And I remember when I was told, well, you know, we don't know. So, well, we have to pack up food and take it to them. And then there were so many Marks and so many Davids that we started a Meals on Wheels type program called Project Angel Food. And I'm proud to say that as of today, Project Angel Food has served over 11 million meals to people in the Los Angeles area 
not only with AIDS, but fortunately, because that situation has improved, thank God, there are still so many people homebound, dealing not only with AIDS, but other life-challenging illnesses, for whom it's not only the food that is brought, but the love that is brought into their lives every day. A social media question coming from Instagram, and <coughs> Corey Burns Birchner. He asks, do you support abortion and late-term abortion? You know, I believe that abortion is a deeply moral issue, but I believe that it is an issue of private morality. So it's not a fair question, do you support abortion? The issue is, do I support abortion rights? That's a very separate issue. <clears throat> I believe that there are issues of private morality and there are issues of public morality. And I believe that abortion is an issue of private morality. Other than the injunction against sex with children, which is universal and I think we'd all agree with, except for that one, I do not believe the government should be telling people what to do with their bodies, what they must do, or what they must not do. I also believe it's a moral issue to consider what the situation was like with abortion in the United States <coughs> before Roe v. Wade. I have a friend whose mother died when he was 15 because of the consequences of a abor botched abortion that she had had years before. Let's be very clear. If we're going to talk morality, what is this morality? You overturn Roe v. Wade and rich women in America will continue to have safe abortions and women who are not rich will go back to the dangerous situations that used to mark that situation. To me, that's a moral issue as well. Another social media question. Anna Curran asks, do you approve <coughs> of illegal immigrants being allowed to vote? Being allowed to vote. To vote in elections. No. Okay, looks like another, sir, uh, actually we have Carolyn Moore, one of our <coughs> regular questions here. Thank you, Carol, for coming, uh, Carolyn, and coming down, and here's Marianne. Thank you. New Hampshire. Thank you. Um, Medicaid part for prescription drugs says that you cannot negotiate with the drug companies. If that is appealed, repealed, excuse me, repealed, how would that affect the rest of Part D? The rest of my Medicaid Part D. <coughs> I'm sorry, ma'am. Medicaid. The Medicare. Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, tremendously. Medicare. Tremendously. Once this, this is a cap that has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that our government does more to advocate for short-term profits for multinational corporate conglomerates, in this case, Big Pharma, rather than for the people of the United States. There are people in this country, as we know, who are dying because they cannot afford their insulin. There are drugs in the United States that cost multiple times more than they cost in other countries for no other reason than the price, price gouging by Big Pharma and the fact that the United States government is willing to go along. This all has to do with the nefarious influence of what's called dark money in this country. The fact that particularly since the Civil Rights, uh, excuse me, Citizens United decision, uh, unlimited uh, amounts of corporate money are poured into, uh, into our system. And I think it's important for us, the American people, to realize <clears throat> there is a common thread here. It's the same thing going on when you see something like the fact that we didn't ground when the, the, these tragic uh, airline crashes happened with the Boeing Max, right? So China immediately grounded those planes. European nations started immediately grounding those planes. All advanced nations immediately grounding those planes. We were very late at it. Why is it? Well, it's because the president of Boeing called, uh, the uh, chairman of Boeing called the president, and Boeing had paid $15 million, $15 million in lobbying the U.S. government this year alone. This is how it works. So <clears throat> we need to do more than just deal with where the American people are being wronged in relation to drug prices, where the American people are being wronged in relation to 
in so many other areas, including even the possible compromise of our safety. I mean, he, we finally grounded those planes, but notice how it took us longer. And that is what I think we all need to awaken to. It's not just one area, it's across the board. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Part of being a good host is being ready. I've got a cough drop for you Thank here you. if you need it. <coughs> uh, one person we haven't talked about yet is uh, the President of the United States, yes. who you'd be running against if you're the nominee. If you are the nominee, how would you run against Donald Trump to defeat him? I do not believe that the American people need me to tell them who the President is. You don't need me to tell you uh, what you already know. Uh, it is my job as a, a nominee, or as a candidate, to articulate for you a vision of America that I feel is far more American and far more beautiful. I believe that this presidency has been an unfortunate episode uh, in our nation's history. And I would like to complete it and get on with the work of our being the country that is, that is who we need to be, who stands by our democratic values, who reclaims our own human values at a deeper level. America can have all the money in the world. America can have all the military might in the world. But if we lose our goodness, uh, John F. Kennedy said, we cannot afford to be materially rich, but spiritually poor. There is so much going on now that is mean-spirited. Our immigration policies are mean-spirited. When we have an EPA, an Environmental Protection Agency, that has gutted the Clean Water Act, gutted the Clean Air Act, that has overturned the, <clears throat> the, the ban on pesticides that we know harm a child's brain. When you have chemical lobbyists and, and, and oil lobbyists as heading your Environmental Protection Agency, when the Environmental Protection Agency was created to protect us from the overreach by such forces. When you have <clears throat> your first Secretary of State, not a great humanitarian or great diplomat, but rather someone who was the ex-CEO of Exxon. When you have the acting director of your Defense Department, a man who was a 30-year executive at Boeing. What we've got, ladies and gentlemen, is not a covert corporate takeover of the U.S. government. We have an overt corporate takeover of the U.S. government. I'm offering another option. So if you don't mind taking your candidate hat off for a second, if you were able to sit down with <coughs> Donald Trump in a room and be a teacher of your teachings, what would you try to communicate to him if you had, say, five or ten minutes? I see the president as someone with whom the personality level is not the most beneficial level of communication. I would probably silently pray for him. Okay. Uh, another social media question here. Uh, we have uh, Cliff King asking, how does she justify wanting to change this great country into a socialist experiment considering that socialism has failed in every country it has been <coughs> attempted? The conservatives weighing in. Well, that's like, when was the last time you beat your wife? I believe in capitalism with a conscience. I, uh, I've never, you know, first of all, th these, these labels are kind of silly now. What do you think the, the police department is if not a socialist uh, uh, situation or the fire department is socialist? But I think of myself as, a capital, uh, as someone who's for capitalism with a conscience. When I grew up, and that's why I think those of us old enough, <coughs> we, we need to remind younger people it wasn't always this way. When I grew up, the social contract was such that we expected a corporation to have more than just fiduciary responsibility to its stockholders. The corporation was expected to have moral and ethical responsibility to its workers and to the environment and to the community. So this way that <coughs> capitalism, you know, capitalism 
can have a high side as well, but nothing can have a high side that does not have ethical standards. So the fact that it has swerved from its ethical core is what needs to change. There are stakeholders that go beyond stockholders. Now, I also believe that there are some very powerful capitalist corporate leaders in America who know this. There's a famous industrialist from Italy who, who said a quote that I think is great. He said, if we want things to stay the same around here, some things are gonna have to change. So I believe that there are, are, are many responsible corporate leaders in the United States who know that <clears throat> this thing has gone too far, it's unsustainable, it's wrong, and they would find in me welcome partner in making changes, uh, but they would also find me very tough in the places where those changes are not being made. I'm not for the corporate subsidies to, to multinational corporate conglomerates that already have all the money. I would definitely want to repeal those tax cuts. I think the idea of organizing our, our society and organizing even our economy according to market forces, untethered to any ethical principles, is completely to be off the table. But that's human ethics that have gone wrong there, not necessarily capitalism itself. So this capitalism, socialism conversation has become silly and also a distraction from what we need to be most concerned with. What is the root cause, do you believe, of that swerving away from a kind of corporate conscience? You know, we have, we, we have a kind of whole systems breakdown, don't we? On one hand, we can say, well, we have been chronically disengaged from the political process, and that has allowed so many of these things to continue. We can talk about the fact that starting in 1980, uh, this was a, an economic philosophy that was introduced. Uh, in 1980, it took hold. <clears throat> this idea of trickle-down economics, and uh, the idea was that if you gave just uh, all the money uh, and all the ability to these small corporate forces and untether them from any kind of regulation, any kind of government interference, then that is the way to organize society. It has had 40, we've had 40 years to see what that has done. It has created, it has devastated the American middle class and it has created the greatest income inequality since 1929. But this is also what's very interesting. The main architect, first of all, <clears throat> it's to be noted that the primary architect of free market capitalism, Adam Smith, said that no free market capitalism will work outside an ethical context. But it's also interesting to note that Milton Friedman, the primary architect of this whole trickle-down economic theory, he himself supported a form of universal basic income. Because he himself said, if you're going to release the market like that, you also got to protect the people. So. The economic system that we've had has put so many people in survival, survival mode, that sometimes too many millions of Americans are living with such anxiety, economic anxiety. How am I going to, what am I going to do if I get sick? What am I going to do if one of my children gets sick? How am I going to send my kids to college? How am I going to pay off these college loans? That sometimes we're not at our best when we're in survival. We're not, we don't even feel we have time to spend the time listening to our children. We're, we, we are forced, too many people in America, forced too much into a situation where they've got to think about what to get as opposed to the more important things. But this is just one more area. No, no socioeconomic group of Americans has a monopoly on values. Not every rich person is greedy. Not every poor person is noble and pure. We all have to return to the goodness in our hearts as well as making sure we return to the goodness of our economic system and the U.S. government. And while we're in this vein, you were one of the first <coughs> candidates to come and speak publicly, or come out and speak publicly about reparations for slavery. Yes. Can you explain how your plan would work and how much you're willing to spend? I believe that in order for this country to transform, 
we must apply moral and spiritual values. And a universal spiritual value is that you must admit the exact nature of your wrong, whether it's Catholics going to confession, whether it's Jews on the day of holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, or 12-step recovery groups where they talk about taking a fearless moral inventory, admitting the exact nature of your character defects. Abraham Lincoln in 1864 wrote a proclamation, a day of fasting and prayer, where he said that a, a country too must confess its sins. We have a national character defect that has been with us from the beginning, and that is racism. Now, I do not believe that the average American is a racist. I do not. But I do believe that the average American is undereducated about the real history of race in the United States, particularly since the Civil War. I think most Americans might not realize, and I do think this would have been different had Abraham Lincoln lived. At the end of the Civil War, Tecumseh Sherman, General Tecumseh Sherman, promised to every former slave family of four, a phrase we've all heard, but not really perhaps thought deeply what it meant, 40 acres and a mule. Now think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Let's say you've kicked somebody to the ground, and let's be clear, two and a half centuries of slavery is definitely kicking someone to the ground. You have a moral responsibility in my mind, and I'm sure in yours, to do two things. Number one, to stop kicking, but also to say, here, let me help you get back up. So as Martin Luther King would say 100 years later, they were freed, but what were they freed to? With that 40 acres and a mule, you're a former slave. You certainly have a skill set. You've been running other people's plantations. Those 40 acres and a mule would give you a chance to be integrated economically into the new condition of freedom. <clears throat> That's not what happened. In most cases, once again, had Lincoln lived, would have been different, I believe. In most cases, the acreage was not given, and even where it was given, in most of those cases, it was taken back. And that was then followed. Once the federal troops left in 1877, that situation was followed by Southern legislatures passing what were called the Black Code Laws. Black Code Laws ensured subpar economic and social and political opportunity for black people. After that, you have your spate of lynchings. This was domestic terrorism, ladies and gentlemen. Ku Klux Klan, that's domestic terrorism. Lynchings, domestic terrorism. But so then you've got the war over in 1865, you've got the federal troops that were stationed to ensure that that slavery would not be reinstituted. They left in 1877. By the year 1900, you had full-on institutionalized white supremacy and segregation in the American South. That was not fundamentally addressed until Martin Luther King in the 1960s. So you have two and a half <coughs> centuries of slavery and then another hundred years of institutionalized violence. With the Civil Rights Movement, with the Civil Rights Act in 1864, they did, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't minimize or undervalue the sacrifices and the struggles of our ancestors, black or white. This was extraordinary what they did. In, 18, in 1964, the passage of the Civil Rights Act uh, uh, dismantled the, the externalities of segregation. And in 18, excuse me, 1965, the Voting Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act ensured vote free, uh, free and equal voting opportunities for blacks. It's also worth noting, ladies and gentlemen, that in 2013, our Supreme Court began chipping away at the Voting Rights Act, which is why all these voter suppression efforts have occurred throughout the country. So in other words, we, we abolished slavery, we dismantled segregation, and we gave equal voting rights, although we started to compromise there. 
what we never did was address the economic gap that began with the end of the Civil War and has never been able to close. We now have a situation where if you're a genius, if you're a, you know, Tyler Perry or Magic Johnson, then you know you're going to make it no matter who you are in America if you're enough of a genius. That of itself is not economic justice. <clears throat> the uh, nation of Germany has paid since World War II $89 billion in reparations to Jewish organizations. Obviously, this, this can't make the Holocaust not have happened. But those reparations have gone far towards reconciling Germany with the Jews of Germany and the rest of Europe. So you've got, that war was over in 1945, and you've got a young generation of Germans who aren't carrying this toxicity on and on and on. Our war was over in 1865, and we are still carrying this because it's time to take the next big step. And that is why I believe we should have reparations for slavery. It won't make slavery not have happened. This is an issue where we must address external and internal issues. But there is such great moral force, spiritual power. We need more than just random acts of kindness now. We need to do huge strategized acts of doing the right thing. America's done great things before. This is time for us to now take the next great step. And, and reparations implies an apology at a deeper level than just I'm sorry. So <clears throat> there could be a council of, of black leaders and that today means American descendants of slaves. Uh, and choosing those people would be a huge issue. You have great black scholars uh, who have worked seriously on this issue, as well as leaders of, of, in culture and academia and politics, et cetera. And the uh, number would be negotiated, of course. And then over a period of, let's say, 20 years, it would be dispersed and applied as this council chose uh, for projects of economic and educational renewal among American descendants of slaves. So more specifically, you're talking about schools and economic development rather our, than direct I, payments? Well, um, there are a couple of ways. There are two things to remember. First of all, if I owe you money, I don't get to tell you how to spend it. On the other hand, the U.S. government would be handing over a lot of money, and we would certainly have the right uh, to have some minimum stipulation. And yes, that has to do with economic and educational renewal, projects of economic and educational renewal. That's why the selection of, of this, um, of this um, council would be a, a very significant uh, process that I hope all Americans would would consider themselves. So just specifically, it wouldn't be individually <coughs> targeted because certainly there are situations that are fraught here because you could have a black African uh, who is not a descendant yes, of slaves who is the, suffers racism as well. Yes, but these days there is, um, there is a, a lot of talk about ADOS, American descendants of slaves. So that is to be honored and this would have to do with people who are American descendants of slaves, not an immigrant from Nigeria, let's say. Okay, and not to belabor the point, but 23andMe is teaching us all sorts of, you know, Ancestry.com <coughs> that there are people who uh, would probably otherwise be identified as white and have not suffered from racism, but they may have uh, descended from uh, someone who is a slave. Would they be eligible in some way, even you know if they are that not That wouldn't be for you and me to decide. The council. Okay. Uh, let's get back to health care. Fl Amy Flanders <coughs> Eastman asks I'm sitting here holding this, this thing <laughs> because I don't want to talk to you with my mouth full. So yeah, let's just you, let's get some that This that is a long upset. question, so it can help you here. <laughs> Amy Flanders Eastman says, before Obamacare became law, my husband had good health insurance through his employer. But when Obamacare became law and my husband's employer could no longer afford the premiums, my husband lost his health insurance and we can't afford to pay out of pocket. So my husband and millions like him have to go without health care. My question is, how will you improve our so-called health care system and make it available and fair for everyone? 
Unfortunately, we've all heard that story before. It was clearly not a perfect system. Um, we can talk about uh, those who designed it. It helped many, many people. And unfortunately, there are people like that person. I am for some version of a Medicare for all. Medicare works. Let's just, you know, one of the things that I, that I would see as a bulwark of my, uh, of my presidency, I want to unleash, take the shackles off the American people so that they can produce, so that you can be there for your family, so that you can be create, so that you can be productive members of society. Americans are just like so burdened. And one of the things that burdens us too much is everything is too complicated. I don't want complicated. I want, you're sick, you go to the doctor, it's handled, get back to your life. And also, I'll tell you something else. We have a, we, we call it health care, but we have more of a sickness care system than we have a health care system. In my presidency, we'd have a health care system. We'd be looking at a lot of issues of health, including our environmental policies, our agricultural policies, our chemical policies, and so forth. We need a far more expanded. You know, so much of our politics today, so much of the dominant political conversations are stuck somewhere in the 1980s, 1990s. This is 2019. The American people have gone further, and so should the American government. Okay, another social media question. This one's a little <coughs> bit lighter hearted. Mark Norris asks, will she have a dog as a pet if she becomes president? You know, <coughs> it's interesting you say that. Somebody came up to me uh, at, a, at a party recently. She said, you know, I told Mitt Romney he would have won if they just had a dog. And the American people were very turned off by that dog on the top. You got to get a dog, Marion. You got to get a dog. Got to get a dog. And I'm not going to get a dog because I think you'll love me more. I, no, I travel a lot. You know, you travel a lot when you're, oh, in the White House, would I? I, I, I? As a child, we had dogs, but as an adult, we've had cats. Okay, so a first cat, then. <laughs> I don't know. I think it'd be, I'm more of a cat person. Staying uh, in this <coughs> realm, I guess, not pets necessarily, but fun and interesting questions. Who do you believe is the most spiritually enlightened president? And I'm going to make this hard for you. You can't say President Obama or President Lincoln. Oh, I can't say Lincoln? You nope, said? sorry. <laughs> I'm taking away the easy well, ones for can, Democrats. How can you ask me that and then tell me that I can't say well, I mean, Lincoln? I'm, I'm, yeah, just go down the list. You know, I, I, I have a... We can talk about, you know, we can talk about one person whose views were so enlightened on this and then who, who's, whose life was not enlightened on that. You know, you can talk about the fact that the founders themselves infused our Declaration of Independence with the most enlightened principles that had ever uh, infused and ever have infused the founding of any country, and yet 41 of them were slave owners. So I, I think that what's significant to me, and the older I get, the more I know this, the older I get, the more you realize, we all have within us the demons and the angels. We all have within us the worst and the best, and so did every president of the United States. We're not running for sainthood here, are we? Uh, we're running for someone who you believe stands not just on the best people, because I think good people are running, but on the values that you feel should infuse uh, the behavior of the presidency. And that, I would certainly try my best. That duality uh, has defined not just this presidency, but uh, the presidency, but the country in general. That's the point. And we this are is now what you would attempt to resolve. With the worst face of America. That is the problem in America today. We are leading with the worst face. We need to lead with our best. Okay. Marianne Williamson, we thank very you. much appreciate thank your time you here. Thank you. thank you so much for joining thank us for a conversation so with thank the you. candidate. We want to thank, <laughs> thank our studio audience and the great town hall questions that were received. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7.
See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.